Have you ever wondered what it takes to build a successful business in the Australian property industry? Well, you've come to the right place. Welcome to Business and Property Development, a monthly podcast in which industry leaders share their insights and experience with host Harry Karadimus. Hello and welcome to Business and Property Development. This is the second part of my conversation with Michael Grant of Cornerstone. In the first part, we covered Michael's journey from his early beginnings establishing and running a successful electrical contracting business to his segue into property development. In this next part, we talk about Michael's landmark projects, his passion for architecture, and why he believes architecture plays such a crucial role in not only the project's success, but also success for the people that live, work, and play in and around the buildings he creates. I hope you enjoy it. Let's talk about some of your landmark projects. In terms of what, maybe, you know, looking at, I guess, what you could call what a cornerstone projects, you know, I think Rockpool was obviously the, the first project that really set a benchmark for architectural excellence, quality. It was certainly ahead of its time, smashed price records in the suburb. Uh, when I did, everyone said you won't get more than 400 grand for, for an apartment. I think we got 800. It was, you know, it was also a very interesting version about the value and quality of architectural fees. We had three architects give us prices. Alex was three times everyone else. I went to my partners and said, honestly, yes, he's 250 grand more than everyone else, but I reckon I'll get 10% more, and 10% on the revenue is 2 million. So we'll spend uh, yeah, 150 more, we're gonna make two. So we're nearly yeah, yeah, eight times better off. So it was a great lesson too of the quality of proper architecture and proper design. And as it turned out, we smashed price records. We, yeah, we made a lot more money than we set out to make. And it wasn't about the money, but it was you know, about the quality of who you deal with. Rockpool was certainly the, probably the first landmark project. I then had a great desire to do stuff in the city fringe because I'd spent a lot of time travelling. And yeah, my favourite cities are Paris, London, Barcelona, New York, all these things that are sort of five, eight, ten level buildings, which is why the fringe in the Surrey Hills, we got six to eight levels here and there. It's a great, it's been a great attraction and adaptive reuse. But then we did a project in, in Surrey Hills called Holton Heart, um, which was 15,000 square metre commercial building, which still today holds the record rent, nearly holds the record rent in Surrey Hills until we just finished 50 Reservoir Street. Yeah, so then it was really sort of Holton Heart that we did a project called Casbah, which also won a lot of worldwide awards. And then just really in the last, which sort of all started two. 2006. So the last 15 years have been an absolute focus on the city fringe. And it's sort of honestly, once again, it just grew organically. I had a sort of opportunity to come across my desk and then people say, how well planned are you and do you strategically think? Honestly, I've been a very opportunistic person to the person knocks the door and said, here's a site, what do you think of it? And then I've looked at it and said, okay, I think there could be some do something extraordinary. And it's sort of honestly, just once again, I can't say that I've strategically gone and acquired all those things. It just happened by default. Just out of curiosity, for projects like, I mean, I pass Griffith's Tees on a weekly basis and I've always pictured myself, I would have thought, sitting inside this building and wondering what I can do with it. What was going through your head when you, we pick up something like this? It was, look, it was funny because I'd, like every developer in Sydney, probably had tried to contact um, Isaac Wakil that owned it. I'd ring, he'd hang up or they'd hang up in the office or you'd send letters and I think everyone had, it would have been empty. You'd been derelict for, got 30 years. And then it was a whole range of things happened differently. But uh, when I developed Holton Hart, I sold the top three floors to Rod Levison owns Q Clothing, who became an investor partner in a whole range of projects. And ironically, he said, can I give you some money? What can we do next? What can we do next? I've had such a great time. And as it turned out, Isaac Wakil was his uncle. And then so Rodney rings Isaac and he says, you know, Isaac, I've got this great young property developer. 
And he goes, Rodney, 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 you, know, you can't do property, you can't do property, stay to textiles, stay to textiles. I'm never selling the building, I hung up. Six months later, I finally got a call. I was in a meeting, I never answered my phone in a meeting. It was just, for whatever, it was just one of those one-off things, I answered the phone. And he said, Michael, it's Isaac, we killed you to hire him. I said, yeah, I've been ringing you for 10 years. So anyway, <laughs> that started a journey to actually buy the building. And then when I first, I said, look, Isaac, I, you know, what's the price? I said, 16 million, he hung up. And eventually, over a period of time, I got into the building. And it's one of the great things that I think is great about our job to go into a building before you've started, particularly adaptive reuse, and look at the transformation through the journey. That was a great example of building, sitting inside the building, thinking, what can we do? You know, well, who's the target market? What's the right piece of architecture for actually, you know, interiors for it? Because obviously it was a beautiful heritage building. How do we position it? To sort of, sort of start at that point, and then on this extraordinary journey for generally three or four years, because by the time you get planning, marketing, construction, build. It's always a three to four year journey on that sort of $100 million size project. It's, it's truly the most exciting part of the job. It can be exhausting, but it's truly to see from beginning to end and then get to the end and think, you know, it's, it's 98% as good as you thought it would be. It's pretty good. It's pretty, <laughs> cool. it's pretty cool. It's fun. Did you know what you wanted to do with it when you bought it? Or did you, like you said, well, no, I'll see, very well, look, opportunistic? It was, it was opportunistic. And obviously, there's obviously going to be all the um, office hotel, the residential market was probably the hottest market at that time. If I had my way again, I probably would have kept a commercial office and kept the building for taking a uh, you know, longer term view. But uh, you know, hindsight's always a marvellous thing. But look, at the end of the day, we ended up going to the residential road, picking a, a really good operator for the for the ground floor and um, low ground floor in Chin Chin, because uh, it sort of underpins the story of that inner city fringe uh, restaurant location. It becomes, once you get there, a combination of who's the right architect, design, construction, and the feasibility sort of dictates you to which what's the most op- opportunistic outcome uh, for what you know, the building can be. Who do you lean on to advise you on what to do with these kinds of buildings? Because you know you only get one shot. You muck it up. You kind of look. To be it. honest, I've been really I've been lucky that honestly, dare I say it, probably myself. I think you have to have a singular vision. Uh, I've been very blessed that my I've never had a business partner, but I've had investment partners. So I'd normally turn up and I say to one of four or five or six people. I've got a building, I need five, 10 or 15, 20 million. We're gonna borrow this much money, we're gonna make, you know, it's gonna take this long. They'll say the same question, what's your vision? I think unless you go to them with absolute conviction and a very clear vision, and if you have two captains or someone puts a version, you know, it's like you know, they're driving the Titanic to the iceberg, you go Port, I go starboard, who'd you blame? So I think honestly, having a singular vision and then backing yourself in on that vision and then absolutely unapologetic to anyone in the way to say, well, yeah, that's the vision, that's the purpose, that's what we're striving for. You'll certainly take advice from some architects here and there. I'll certainly take a bit of advice. You know, so I'll ask questions and I'll say, what do you think? Well, you, know, you go and talk to the uh, marketing. Dave Milton from CBR um, Residential Project Marks is an absolute genius. So you might go and talk to Dave and say, Dave, what do you think and what does it look like? If it's commercial, you might have a different view, talk to a commercial agent. But ultimately, you've got to still a vision in your own mind because if not, I can't lead whether it be my team, the design team, the builder, and executed to, you know, for, for all from inception to completion without being very singular in what I want to achieve. How did you learn that though? Did you learn it from, is it like, does it come from say your contracting days where you're your own boss and the, the buck stops with you, so you just I have think, to I make think, yeah, I think that's a fair assessment. Mm. I think there's a, there's a point where, yeah, both my mum and dad said from an early age, um, have courage and conviction, and then if you've got a plan, stick to it and execute that plan. It doesn't matter what that is. It can be building a boat, it can be building a farm, what my dad was doing, but it'd be, you know, whatever you do in life for anyone. So it's, but you've got to be careful you don't get carried away with your own success sometimes because making money is actually not that... I think the key that Alex taught me is on a project, if you care more about the design of the people, money will take care of itself. So it was, it was really a combination of alert behaviour, 
over a long period of time yeah. of doing thousands and thousands of hours of getting out of bed early and going to bed late that gave you the, you know, the courage to have the, you know, um, to say, well, that's what I want to do. That's what I'm going to do. Doesn't mean it's always right. Doesn't mean it's always going to be perfect. Doesn't mean I couldn't have done it better. But I'm not unhappy with the um, results we've had. So let's talk about your connection with architecture. I think that's in no small part why your projects are as successful as they are. There's, a, there's this amazing appreciation for design and great love of, of architecture. So your passion comes from, I guess... Well, it comes from an early age. It comes from an early age with your yeah, Mum used to go sculpting with a, guy, a famous Australian sculptor called Tom Bass. Um, she was always painting. She was always sculpting. Yeah, we always had this sort of huge amount of art and architecture books and sort of stuff from an early age in, in the house. Yeah, I was lucky to do a lot of travel. And then really, it really, you know, if I look to the true part of actually trying to build a proper career and build proper buildings, it really did come, uh, the original foundation really came out of Alex, uh, firstly, Ronnie Billard, secondly, because we did a lot of, Ron was a, an amazing planner and an architect, but, but did a lot of urban planning on master plan communities and stuff, particularly American long to early in the days. So I had this great architectural premise from Alex. And you know, when you talk to the architects, he sort of set me to the, you know, the best of the world ever. And then to have this sort of grounding of looking at you know, how buildings touch the ground and making sure you leave the world in a better place in an urban footprint sense, um, yeah, that developed in the you know, mid-90s to late-90s. And over the last 22 years, I've just religiously focused on you know, trying to deliver high-quality architectural outcomes with people that I like. Frustrated architect, do you think? Or? I wouldn't say I'm a frustrated, I'm probably frustrated at everything. But, you know, <laughs> but, but, but I, you know, I think the, yeah. the contribution of always thinking, always you know, looking at things differently and, and challenging, because I, I think a lot of clients probably don't challenge I think a lot of clients and a lot of developers go to the architect and say, here's my project, draw that, where I, yeah, I'd probably do drive them insane, say, what about this, what about that, push this, move that, move this, move that. You know, to me, every square metre, and it's not about the money again, but every square metre is either worth ten, fifteen, dollars or $20,000, depends on what the market is, what you're building. But more importantly, you know, does it function properly? Is there enough storage? You know, there's so many aspects of living and or working. Um, where does the light come from? Where does the breeze come from? Have we got that right? Can we change it by five degrees or 10 degrees? Can the window be bigger? A lot of architects want to design for an architectural facade, but how does that relate to what's inside the, the house or the, or the office? Oh, but it looks beautiful outside, but how does it function when you're inside? You work with some of the best that we've got in Sydney. How do you get the best out of them, given who they are? Look, to be, to be honest, Alex was always a dream. In the last probably 15 years, I've probably done most of my work with Adam and uh, Ian Halliday. I challenge them, they challenge me. Once again, I say, look, it doesn't mean I'm always right. Ian's got a certain look, and I say, well, that's all great, but I don't love this look for this building because my dream is that it has to be, you know, Casbah Marrakesh, which might seem bizarre, but, or it might be something different. And honestly, it's, it's just a, it's become easier over time. Yeah, so I think, it's, I think they actually like being pushed. Um, I think they like that my uh, quest for perfection and excellence is something that a lot of other developers don't have. I want to set the best, and which is good for them too, because I want, I want to do architectural outcomes. I'm very passionate about it. And I think a lot of people just turn up and say, well, draw me this, but they'd actually rather be challenged because they learn. Yeah, so the good news in um, the last 15 years, I, I haven't had an argument. We just keep on pushing the boundaries and say, how do we do things better and how do we do them differently? How do you know when to yield to advice and when to take your vision and really... Put your foot down and say, no, no, that I think that really needs to be that. That happens in probably three years. I'm doing a thing at the minute with um, Adam, which is literally finished. We get the occupations of it today, as it turns out, for the 262 Liverpool Street. It's amazing, an amazing church delivered for the Ramsey Foundation. Look, I think there's times where if my vision's one thing, I'm always very singular to it. I'm probably some, well, I'm probably dogmatic to that vision. And Adam recently said, oh, I think it should be white. I, th- I said, well, I think it should be black. And he said, I really want it to be white. 
And I said, well, why does it have to be white? In the end, I actually, in that example, I looked at it, I thought about it, I went back and I said, I agree, it should be white. It's how we, if, if the communication level and there's a level of trust between us, which there's a high degree, a high degree of trust in all, with all the, um, anyone we work with, because we've been lucky that we've been with people for so long, um, which I think is also a great part of the journey. Yeah, so you, honestly, you pick the points. If you really think that it's wrong, I say respectfully, that ultimately it just doesn't fit with what I think's right. And then ultimately, you know, we sort of always find middle ground. Occasionally, I bounce off someone else and say, oh, yeah, Adam thinks this is what he reckon. So, yeah, we end up with the best outcome, I think. So, with delegating a vision to other disciplines that are involved in the development process, one of the things I've noticed is companies can control that by being more vertically integrated in that they have, they have development, they have architecture, they might even have sales and marketing all under one organization and therefore you know you can control that information and make sure that everybody understands exactly what they're doing how do you do it if i chose a long time ago not to grow into this massive business i want to do two or three really cool projects a year yeah i sit nicely in that sort of hundred million dollar world so i'm not a big boy i'm not a little boy uh, but i sit in a nice little niche uh, by having you know three or four key staff and choosing the people i've worked with for a long time yeah i've had the, i've got the same pool of architects Sometimes that means they miss out, which is a good thing. Yeah, Adam was upset he missed out on Griffith T, so was Ian. Alex got it. Adam was upset that he missed out on Lacey. Ian got it. Ian was upset he missed out on Church. Adam got it. So this is yeah, there's enough competitive tension, enough for the three of them to go around. So I've I've got the same base consultants I've used for a long time. Same with engineers. Same with planning. Same with landscape architecture. So they all know that we've got this constant pursuit for excellence and what our vision looks like. They do know that I'm single-minded, rightly or wrongly, and they'll work really well within that. By having only doing two or three things, it's actually easy to stay on top of the delegation of the vision because you're actually involved in all the key decisions. I think it's frustrating for my staff uh, more than uh, a lot lot of the time because there's a certain point where they'd like some more autonomy at times. But I'll be honest, I'm unapologetic that I've got investors that give me $10, $20 million, they're backing me in. Um, If I think that the vision should be delegated by me um that's how it's going to be with the growth of the business obviously at the beginning you're doing everything i mean you're doing two things you're running contracting business plus finding sites when you fast forward to today and where cornerstone is what did you begin to delegate so that you could focus on what was most important to you and i guess the second part of the question is what is most important to you i think the honest answer is still i'm I'm a shit delegator but I think that's how you get an extraordinary outcome. There's so much labour of love in creating quality and perfection in design, perfection in construction, and I don't know, we don't always get it right. Yeah, I work really closely with the key people in my team to deal with elements of delegation. I will never give up on design or making sure that you know, the design that I look and the feel that I look is what I think is consistent with the original overall vision that I presented to whoever we've done the project with. It's probably it's probably limited my growth in terms of a business and its capacity. But yeah, I've never set out to be um, a big developer, wildly rich. I would have set out to do really cool things with cool people, have a good time. So probably limited where I could have gone or what I could have done. I think the projects, when you look at the quality of them, and I never set out to win a lot of awards, uh, but we've won, I don't have to think, countless, um, and around the world. But that's just a testament, hopefully, to the level of detail and quality of persistence to get the vision delivered and, and construction and excellence construction, too you yeah. know because you've got to you got to have the build i think in the same way actually in the same way as us which i think for builders is a great thing because ultimately you know you'd rather work for a client that has a consistent vision than someone that's all over the shop that's right. painful at least you know where you stand so in terms of rules that you've developed over time what would some of those have been some some of the ones that you hold closest to you that- Look, I, think, I think as a developer you're managing a huge amount of risk a huge amount of capital 
it's a very rare business where I buy something today for doesn't matter what it is, twenty million dollars. I spend another sixty million dollars on it. So you spend you put eighty million dollars out the door and you hope that in four years the settlements haven't fallen over and you get your eighty million dollars back plus make a profit. So yeah, it's certainly a very it's it's got a lot of risk. There's a lot of planning risk in today's environment. There's a lot of um, construction risk. There's a lot of market risk. So I think the, the, the first sort of key principle we developed, which came from a very early, my very first mentor, number one, always get a guaranteed maximum lump sum price from a quality builder, a reputable builder that's got a big balance sheet. Never pre-sell before you've got that price because often I've seen a lot of developers go to the market, sell the whole building out. Construction price goes up by $5 million. They've got nowhere to go for a road of their margin. So number one, get a GMP price, reputable builder, pay for the builder to make sure he's got his good balance sheet and he's going to be there at the end of it. Then get pre-sales equal to construction debt or more. I like normally 150%. We're very lucky so we've been had the right projects and we've sold them out. But um, yeah, you better get rich slow than go broke quickly. So you know, measure your risk in terms of construction, measure your risk in terms of pre-sales for eventually when you get into the banking world. Be relentless once the building starts in quality, be unapologetic about you know, wanting to deliver quality construction that matches the design vision. So when you, uh, people turn up to buy the apartments or the commercial office, whatever you're doing, there's a level of quality that's consistent with what they thought they bought. Would you give up time in order to make yes, sure that... always, always. There's always this constant pressure and you've got to push, push, push. But I think there's a great saying that, um, I don't know who said it, but it's a great saying that, Joe, price and time are soon forgotten, but quality lasts forever. I think that's slightly wrong. But ultimately, you're better to have another four weeks or six weeks, uh, which is not always easy because time costs a lot of money, but you better get it right, hand over properly than push and have it incorrectly. Where do you look to do things differently or to innovate on what you're... To be honest, I like to think that because we've had such a quest for learning and such a, you know, a, a constant traveling looking at things you know we I probably spend 12 or 16 weeks a year traveling and while that's often on leisure it's you know 10 I always pick cities to go to that still got a lot of architecture a lot of hotels a lot of restaurants a lot of mixed use a lot of adaptive free so the constant re- lens and focus is always on research looking what's working in different parts of the world in terms of you know what do people want, what's happening. So I think we've always had this constant journey to keep on learning as we go and keep on innovating as best we can as we go. Honestly, once again, I think that's sort of an organic thing. I think people think oh, I'm this great innovator. I've never really thought like that. I just think, you know, if we can just keep on doing the best we can, keep on pushing all the team around us. Yeah, there's lots of things, as you said, that you know, can happen is what's an innovator, what's the next trend. If you're constantly just trying to match your market, deliver what that looks like product honestly generally take care of itself what are you looking for at this point in time in terms of what comes next yeah in terms of the projects that you're look the hard part is honestly for us is as you get older you get i love what i do i'm going to work to the day i die number one number two though (laughs) i do want to do it differently i'm not rich i'm not poor i've got a lot of very rich friends and a lot of very poor friends (laughs) so never compete never compare Um, but i'm certainly doing it because i want to not because i have to um, which is a great place to be but i've had so much luck and i honestly i know everyone says you make your own luck and you do I've just finished 262 Liverpool Street, the most extraordinary restoration of a heritage building, full of unbelievable complexity. Just also finished 50 Reservoir Street, a commercial, amazing building, a 400 metre footprint. Off the back of Griffith Tees, off the back of number one Lacey, Casbah, Cleveland Coast. So I've had these amazing collection of buildings over the last, or projects over the last um, 10 or so years. 
So it's hard to think, you know, someone brings you a science link. Um, how can it be more extraordinary than the last one? And funnily enough, if you don't think there's going to be a better building than the last one, you know, I thought there'd be nothing better than Griffith T or nothing better than Lacey. And I don't know if that's luck, good management, hopefully a bit of both. Yeah, so for us at the minute, it's a very, it's the first time ever in my um, 30 years of property where I actually haven't literally got anything actually bored or in the pipeline. I've had an absolute focus to clean up, get reservoir cleaned up and done and fully leased because off the back of COVID, there was a lot of risk in commercial leasing. So we had an absolute focus to get that fully leased. We had it fully leased within three months of completion completion at record rates. Church finished literally today, uh, hand over to Rems Foundation tomorrow. So you know, I'm looking for an extraordinary project that will create a new benchmark that A, gives me some you know, passionate advice to work with either you know, Ian or Adam or whoever it may be. But the good news is I'm not in a hurry. Project will, you know, I've got two or three things I'm looking at. One thing on the Northern Beaches, I think I can create a whole new level and a whole new benchmark in terms of what it'll represent. I haven't done much on the Northern Beaches for a long time. A lot of stuff in the Northern Beaches, all the 90s was all DY, Monaval, Narrabeen, residential apartment buildings. But looking at the thing at Monaval at the minute that I think could be a, a, it's a mixed-use project that I think can be incredibly special. A couple of things, potentially one thing in Potts Point that I think has an opportunity to be quite extraordinary. But unless it actually fits that benchmark that can it be extraordinary, is it with someone that I like to work with? Is it like someone I want to invest with? And you know, will, I, you know, will it fit nicely in the urban footprint? To be honest, I'd, I'd rather sit on the beach. It's interesting because many years ago, there was a couple of developers I really admired and I think, God, it has looked so easy for them. You know, these things turn up, these great projects turn up. And as I've got older, subconsciously, it has got easy because, you know, when you do nice work and you've, you've got, um, I guess, success based upon what people think of your projects and what awards you may have won, I, you know, I get a lot of phone calls every week, do you want to look at this, do you want to look at that? I've got better at saying no. So the minute, honestly, that's the exciting part. I'm sure there'll be something extraordinary. I just don't know what it is just yet. Waiting to see what it is, yeah. yeah. So if we could, I'd like to understand as we begin to wrap up, did you set out to do anything in particular with the discipline of property development? Like, was No, it- honestly, all I truly set out to do was to build extraordinary, but well, if I go back to the early 90s, I set out to start a career in something that I truly had more passion for than being an electrician. I love my days as an electrician, but had more passion for. That developed in the early period of time to be how to make people live in a better place. Early when I did Rockpool and we sold Rockpool, I went and handed over the keys and took champagne to every owner. And I sat on the balcony in 1990, I think we finished the Rockville in 1998. And I sat on the balcony with this woman and she said, you've changed the way I, uh, I, I live because ultimately the sun comes in here, the wind comes in here, all the things that Alex, had, you know, when Alex and I talked about it for two years before. To me, I nearly cried, it was more important than the money I'd made that I had a homeowner that literally said, the quality of how my, this apartment's laid out and the quality of the light and the quality of how I'm living has really enhanced my life. That then really became the premise of how the next 20 years evolved, thus the architecture involved and the growing of all of those things. So it sort of once again organically, organically grew. I'd like to say I had this great vision from early, uh, but I probably truly didn't. And honestly, the only thing I've ever really set out to achieve was to say that I've got three fabulous kids. You know, if in 20 years' time my kids drove down and drove past Casbar, drove past Rockpool, Rockpool today looks as good as it looked 25 years ago, drove past, you know, the church, drove past Reservoir, and say, actually, Dad did some pretty cool things. I'd die happy, man. I'd like to just end on on one final thing, two-part one. Knowing what you know now, is there anything that you may have done differently in your journey through life and business? But also, equally, given what you've achieved... Is there something that you're that you're absolutely thankful for that you did, which has enabled that material impact on your on your life? I think that's the first part of the question. There's nothing I'd do differently. I've had the most incredible journey. I've had the most incredible ride full of most you know roller coasters of emotion, roller coasters of um, stress at different times for different reasons. I've met extraordinary people that have fundamentally changed my life. 
I like to think I've had some impact on their life in different ways. It's been an absolute blast to go back and think I'd change this or change that. Uh, it'd be, a, it'd be you know, a life half-lived. Um, so honestly, I, I'm so happy with how it's rolled in that regard, and I don't think I'll have another 20 years in me. In terms of the second part of the question, I think honestly, I think in terms of advice, it was really honestly going back to mum and dad's early thing of love what you do, do it with passion, do it with integrity, and then Alex's lesson of build extraordinary buildings, go and study the world's best, learn from that, don't care about money, build extraordinary product, and everything will take care of itself. Yeah, so a combination of hard work ethic, passion, and those early bits of advice from you know, um, both the parents and but also um, Alex, but in particular, yeah, lined up with a, a variety of hundreds of people, you know, many mentors that gave me other solid advice about you know, do things slowly and do extraordinary things in a quite humble way. This is the end of the episode. I hope you've enjoyed listening to Michael's story and the vast wealth of business and development acumen he possesses. The primary takeaway for me is the importance of quality architecture in any property development. Now, I might be a little biased given I'm an architect myself, but you can see the results not only when you engage a quality firm, but also when you have the ability to engage in the architectural process and to challenge your design team in order to get the best for the project. Michael, this was a thoroughly enjoyable episode to record. Thank you for being a part of it. I'd also like to extend my thanks to Michael's executive assistant, Michelle. Michelle, this episode would not have been possible without your commitment and organisation, so a huge thank you from me to you. Well, that's it from me for this month. I'm absolutely thrilled to be back at it for season two, and I'm very much looking forward to sharing the next month's episode with you very shortly. Bye for now. Thanks for listening to Business and Property Development. Join us next month for more insights from people whose business is property. To subscribe and listen to other episodes, head over to businessandpropertydevelopment.com.au.